Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Ruta, Yordana Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachat Shabbat, Samach Aleph, 61. Now, if you'll recall, yesterday in the Mishnah, we talked about a number of different items that a man is not supposed to go out on Shabbat. It's considered carrying instead of wearing, right? And one of the examples was that he's not allowed to go out with just one shoe. And I said at the time, you know, Presumably, that's not for any health concern. And here we are on Daf Samach Aleph, where we have exactly the example of the health concern. If he has some kind of wound or injury on his foot, then he can go out with just one foot, with one sandal, one shoe. But then the question is, so which shoe is he allowed to wear for it to be considered acceptable? Rav Huna says, he can wear the shoe or the sandal, whatever, on the foot that is injured, because and the and the rationale is right that it's some kind of protection for this injury for the injured foot. Al sandal l'shum avid. So the rationale is, according to Rav Huna, that the whole idea of a sandal, sandal, right, is made to avoid pain. You wear sandalim, you wear shoes as you walk out, so that you're not just walking on pebbles or rocks, whatever, and it protects your feet in general. Right, so then the concern is, well, if you're wearing only one shoe, then it's got to be obvious that you're protecting your your injury because otherwise you would be protecting against sa'ar, against the pain, and the other foot as well. So that, so then you don't have to worry that somebody's like secretly carrying a shoe in a way that would be a problem. So having just the one on the injured foot is the rationale of Rav Huna. But Rav Chia Rav says something else. No, no, he's wearing the sandal. He's wearing the sandal on the foot that is not injured. So apparently he holds that not to protect against pain, but because it's a more enjoyable walk. You're providing comfort in your shoes. So then you wear the shoe on the regular foot, meaning the uninjured foot, so that it provides that comfort. And the assumption then is that because of the injury itself, you couldn't actually wear the other shoe. Right, the very fact that he's that he that the the let me say this right that the sandal is not on the injured foot is an indication that there's a wound there and that's why he can't wear it. The Gemara goes on and says that Rav Yochanan held like Rav Huna. That was our first opinion that you that he's wearing the sandal on the shoe that ha- on the foot that has the injury. The Amalei Rav Yochanan Rav Shemin Bar Abba Havli Misnai Yahavli Diamin Amalei Asiti Maka Asito Maka. So what happens? Rav Yochanan says to Rav Shemin Bar Abba, "Here, give me my sandal," and he gives him the right sandal. And then Rav Yochanan says to him, "You've." render this foot as one with a wound, meaning you've only just given me the one shoe, then you put the right one on first. Right? The claim is here, and it's an interesting rationale. If you put your right shoe on first, then you don't put the left shoe on. By handing him, this is the commentary that we find in the on Safaria, which is the Steinfeld's commentary. By handing him his, the right sandal, he forces Rav Yochanan to go out with only one. And therefore, people will you know, conclude that he has a wound on that foot, meaning on the foot that he is wearing the shoe on. So namely, that's Rav Huna's opinion. Okay. 
Dilma Kachia Barav severely, but maybe really he held like Ravchia. Maybe, and in that case, the idea would be that he should be wearing the sandal, the sandal on the healthy foot, and saying, by handing me the right shoe, you've rendered my left foot to be the problem where I have no wound. Meaning, just by virtue of handing him um, the sandal to put on either foot, it doesn't really give you any proof which foot is injured, because if you think that you're wearing the shoe, that you can only wear the shoe on the injured foot, well, then that's the injured foot. And if you think that you could only wear the shoe on the not injured foot, well, then the shoe, then that is the not injured foot. So at the end of the day, this, you know, you can't, there's no way to determine what Rev Yochanan held by virtue of the fact that he's only putting on one shoe in terms of whether he's putting it on the foot that's injured or not. But as Rev Yochanan the Tame, then say, well, Rev Yochanan follows his regular line of reasoning. What's his regular line of reasoning? The other Rav Yochanan, Kitfilin kach menalim. Rav Yochanan says, the same way that you wear tefillin, that's how you wear your shoes. Ma tefillin basmol, af menalim basmol. So Rav Yochanan says, the same way that you put on your tefillin on the left arm, meaning this is the standard practice. It happens to be that more people are right-handed and their dominant arm is more often the, right, let me take a step back. When people wear tefillin, there's two ways to think about it. Either it's always that you wrap the tefillin with the right arm, with the right hand, and therefore it's always on the left hand. And then there's another opinion that says you write, you wrap the tefillin with your dominant hand, which for most people happens to be the right hand, and so it ends up being wrapped on the left hand. And that if you're a lefty, I know that there are some people who are lefties who wrap with their left hand on their right arm. Okay. Um, but then the implication here is because we're really still talking about the sandalim, about the shoes, so that Rabbi Yochanan would hold that the same way that with tefillin you start with your left arm, so too you start with putting your shoes on on the left foot, and therefore that must be how, you know, that you start with putting your shoe on your left foot, and then it's somehow it's no longer quite about the injury in the same way. Anyway, um, the point here is that First of all, I'm very pleased that the Gemara goes back to address this particular case. It's kind of like a, a, you know, an exception to the principle of you can't go out wearing just one shoe because then you'll come to carry the second shoe, but you won't if you're actually accommodating your feet by wearing only one shoe because of the injury, right? And also the the fact that you can trace both sides through perfectly, right? Meaning the rationale that you should wear the shoe on your injured foot or you should actually wear your shoe on your non-injured foot, I can tell you having sprained ankles in my life or other kinds of feet kinds of injuries, I can tell you that sometimes you want the foot, you want the shoe to protect the injury and sometimes you want it not to. So I lay that out for everybody to think about and we can move on from here. I just, I, I am pleased with the thoroughness of the Gemara in addressing this particular case by case thinking. Yeah, it's a very thorough Gemara, but I don't, you know, what's, again, what's the reason for it? You know, that's the only piece that I feel is a little bit lacking here, like the underlying of why the right or the left and why do that first. But it does reflect this sort of, like you said, thoroughness, not only to how they um, tease out the whole halacha here, but even just the piece of like how every single part of your life, you know, this just even to how you put your shoes on, tie your laces, all of that is somehow regulated within a halakhic framework. Right. I think that the reason that it's not, it's not allowed in general, I mean, this, maybe this is not your question, but I, 
If the question is why are you not in general allowed to wear only one shoe, the concern is that you might be carrying the other shoe. Oh no, I was so injury... I was meant more the right and left, like which one you put on first. Oh yes, the... yes. I mean, but again, there you have the govern the the right. If you start with your right shoe, your right. Let's say forget sandalim for a moment, then you put on sneakers, and you put on your right sneaker first, and then you put on your left sneaker, and then you tie your left sneaker, and then you tie your right sneaker. Right, like that. Right, left, left, right is jewish right? right but it's not exactly clear why right you know. that's a, the explanation to me seems a little lacking on the page that's all i wanted to point out but yet the idea of doing it we certainly see in other halachic sources and it's all from this gemara right so i wanted to talk about the amulets that are on here um and this whole idea of amulets so i'll just read uh you know the from here um the gemara says the following well as we know, the Mishnah basically says that one is allowed to wear an amulet, and the, the word for it is kamaya, um, in, uh, that uh, was made by a mumcha, that's made by an expert, that you could wear on Shabbat. And so it quotes the following to Sefto, Tanu Rabbanan, Eza kamaya mumcha, what is considered to be an amulet that's, you know, expert, supposed to repay anyone that heals, Vishana Vishilesh. Right, that healed a person once, healed him again, and healed him a third time. And this could be one that was written, an amulet that was written, or one that was made up of some herbs. And it could be one that's been, that has helped a person who was sick, who was right, like dangerously ill, or even a person who was sick who was not dangerously ill. So I just wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about what this kamaye is. Um, first of all, the root of the word itself is interesting. Um, Rashi here on the page says it may mean something like t- to bind. And the idea is that like it was something that was bound, um, you know, on the person itself. Um, or th- I saw in a few other places that it may come from an Arabic word um, that actually could mean like to, to hang, right? Because it was something that you would like hang on yourself. Um, and, um, you know, it's just, it's interesting that first of all, it's just accepted as part of the culture of the Gemara itself, that people had these amulets and that they would, um, use them. Um, and that there was this written one, and then there's one that was done with the herbs. Uh, what we don't have any good sources for, and again, not anything that I could find. And, you know, as we prep these sort of like day to day, it's not like I spent, um, a year writing or five years writing a dissertation, and there probably is somebody who has. But what is interesting is that in the Gemara <laughs> itself, there's no source for what was written on them, right? Like that's kind of interesting. Like we don't have a sense of what the Psukim were. So there's some thoughts that maybe it was just the shame of Hashem, right? Um, there's even some later sources that talk about, you know, um, that, um, and it could have been different names of God, okay? Um, there is some, uh, they have found like later ones that maybe had like the Birchat Kohen, you know, the, the pre, the saying that we find in Bamidbar. Um, but it is very, but I think the two interesting pieces here is it was a completely accepted part of life and that we don't actually have any practical, you know, nothing's actually ever written about like what would be written in the ambulance? When you think about it, especially- Oh, wait, wait, let me stop you. Let me stop you. Yeah. I'm reminded, and I, I'm embarrassed to say that it's until this conversation that it, meaning I learned the daft before and it didn't even cross my mind. Um, 
I wrote a paper in high school in Jewish history class on amulets. In fact, it was called Amulets or some very exciting title like that. And this sounds like this should be unearthed and reread. <laughs> right? <laughs> I bet you anything I have it in the other room. I, I like because because it was Jewish history. So, of course, I have those papers somewhere, right? I, I don't have everything, but that I'm sure I do. Um, also, it might have been like the first paper that I actually typed out. This is completely dating myself, uh, you know, as opposed to uh, what happened later with word processing. Okay. Um, so I know that there's a book on ambulance called something like Jewish Superstition and Heresy or something. I don't remember the title, unfortunately, but the author's name is Joseph Trachtenberg. He's all, he also wrote a book called, I think, The Devil and the Jews, something like that. If you want to know, so our listeners and you're dating yourself, if you want to know much more about amulets, it focuses much more on the Middle Ages where it became much more of a thing. But the the phenomenon of this Jewish amulet goes back or is traced through in this book. Uh, maybe Daniel Sperber also has some discussion of it. I'm not sure because his books came out after the time that I was in high school working on this paper. Trachtenberg, he wrote about amulets. Okay, great. So I'm going to have to look that book up. Thank you. And we did even actually discuss this beforehand. <laughs> it's funny. I know. I tell you. I, while we're like recording. You know, back to you. Right. No, but I, but I think what's here is interesting is, again, the piece of it's an accepted part of life. And yes, it's interesting to see, you know, I think that in the Middle Ages, yes, there is some controversy around it and the use of them. But here it seems from the pages of the Gemara, this was just a completely acceptable part of life. And I would have thought that it would have included at this point some text over like what actually was in the amulet itself. And there's no mention of it at all, which is also very interesting to me. Um, so I just think it's like this is, you know, the biggest discussion around amulets is takes place in Masachat Shabbat on this page. Um, and I think also the idea that it was really understood the way that the amulet had to sort of like prove itself right if it was a proven one if it was known to actually heal people then that was one uh that you were allowed to actually wear um because presumably i guess then you would like never take it off um so and then the gemara goes on and has uh you know a further interesting discussion which is about whether or not the text in it itself would it be considered to be kedushin right would, would it be considered to be something that's kadosh and therefore could you wear it in a bathroom um or not wear it in a bathroom um, and I thought this was also an interesting um, discussion because, you know, first it starts from the point of, you know, if the content itself in the amulet is what would give it its kedusha. Um, But then, you know, I, I think the other, the way I would have thought about it a little bit is if you have one that sort of has saved a person or, you know, did something for a person, would that give it like some type of... Um, you know, Kedusha to that, not necessarily because of what was um, actually um, written in it. So I think that's also what's interesting is that, yes, you know, they use them, um, but it's not that they themselves were considered to be like a religious object, even though they seem to have uh, something that they did. And I think actually it probably was more like medicinally used, like this was part of what medicine was. And so I think that's why it wasn't necessarily considered a ritual object. It was more a question of if the content of it, like obviously it had some writing that included God's name, if that is what bestowed upon it, um, it's, it's holiness. Um, but I think it's made very clear that the object in itself and the, I'm hesitant to use the word power. I don't think that's the right word. I think its ability 
to heal a person or to make a person well, well, that is not what gives the object sanctity. That's not what gives the object Kedusha. So, you know, again, I think it's just an interesting thing that's on the page. Interesting that it's completely accepted. Um, and yes, for our, you know, learners, when you go look up and maybe read a little bit about amulets, I think you'll see that it actually was just, um, there are definitely rabbis in the Middle Ages, some who came out against it. Um, but up until like, for my understanding, and again, this was my, you know, one day research of this, up until pre-World War II, uh, these were very commonly used, particularly around pregnancy and childbirth, um, and were really like in a very accepted part of Jewish life. So I think the one tricky thing which you just mentioned is that, and the Rambam is, you know, noted for coming out very strongly in this in this vein, is to note that tefillin and mezuzot are not amulets, right? Like the whatever controversy comes up later over whether amulets are good or not, there is still a physical object with holy writing that is, right? We kiss children, we kiss them as a, we treat them as holy objects because they are. And the idea that there's some like, as you say, power or magic going on with them is, you know, the Rambam comes up very strongly to say, Sifre, um, what are they called? Tashmishe Kodesh, right? The, these items that are holy are still not amulets. And the question of whether an amulet is effective or not is a whole separate question. And I'm sure that there's as many opinions on that as, as on any other type of thing where someone, someone calls it a superstition, someone else calls it effective, you know, that is Kedusha. I, I do think that you're exactly right, that the idea here is that God is behind it all. And 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 that's that's where anything is getting its effectiveness and maybe we direct ourselves better when we have the focus of a Kamea before us. But again, I am with you that this is not, um, it does not have any independent power. Right. And again, and I see that because the question about the Kedusha of it really has to do around with the writing that was on it and not the object itself and because it actually cured somebody. And I think that's a very important point that you raised, which I had actually meant to mention, which is it's very different than a mezuzah or tefillin, right? The mezuzah and the tefillin, it's very clear from where it is written about in the Torah what the purpose of it is. We'll talk about the tefillin later because that actually has to do directly with Hilchot Shabbos and why it's not, why we don't wear it, why we don't wear tefillin on Shabbat, right? And we talked about that because, you know, it's an oath. It's like literally a sign of our relationship with God. And so is Shabbat. And we don't need both at the same time. Um, but that's not what an amulet was doing. So I think we, we, you know, they should never, they should not be confused together. And yes, the Rambam very much so felt that you could not use these types of religious objects, uh, like tefillin, like mezuzah, like a Torah scroll to try to cure illness. That's our dap for the day. Uh, you know where to find us, rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Uh, please leave us a comment. Let us know if you know anything about amulets. Um, if you have ever seen one, we'd love to hear more about that on our Facebook page. And until tomorrow's death, go and...